Hello, heroes, and welcome to Backstory. I'm your host, Alex Roberts. Heroes, this is a really cool episode because it was recorded at my own kitchen table with cartographer and game designer Mark Richardson. It's a boisterous and surprisingly personal interview, so let's jump right in. Yeah, so I actually want to ask you about being a cartographer and cartography, because I feel like Oh, like, what kind of responses do you get when you tell people you're a cartographer? You know, to, to a lot of nerds, that's, like, kind of unbelievable and I, kind of a dream. I think a lot of people wonder, like, you can actually make a living at that. Yeah. I make a very good living at that. Um, I, um, yeah, it, it's, geez, um, oh, there's my first, I was like, I wonder what her first question is going to be and how it's going to throw me. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, a lot of people don't really, uh, they're like, how do you, what do you go to go for school for that? And I'm like, Yes. Um, you can do, like in the field that I'm in, which is GIS, is Geographic Information System or Geomatics, um, it's a very massive field. It's a Canadian field, actually. Like it, the technology was developed in Canada uh, back in like the early 70s, 80s to 90s, and it was mostly based on our forestry industry in terms of using computers to manage information and satellite imagery. And all that, that makes perfect sense. Exactly. And so um, Canada kind of developed this technology and then... Uh, kind of exported it to the world and there's a whole bunch of different companies that are now involved in it and it's kind of like um the technology at its base is kind of ubiquitous in our lives like it, we don't even think about it like everything is just geopositioned everything um and so from the cartography perspective it's about using computer like so the stuff that i do is mostly print um designs um some digital stuff you can do um there's all sorts of parts. Like you can do in the field, there's people who do satellite imagery. I have a friend of mine, he did his uh, master's in forestry imaging. That's all he does is stuff wow. with satellites and forestry stuff. And I'm like, I have no idea. Like, I, like you show me, like I can tell it's trees. You know? <laughs> um, yep, that's but, trees. <laughs> um, and there's all sorts of, there's so many different fields. Uh, and it's, I uh, started. Um, about 16, 17 years ago when I graduated university, uh, which I went in the field. I studied, started in geography and then uh, got into a sort of small specialized program for about 15 people kind of thing. And the, when the field was so new, we didn't have textbooks. There were no textbooks in the program, which was great because yeah. I didn't read them anyway. Um, <laughs> at the end of university, uh, I actually have a cop. I have one of my geography textbooks is still in its original shrink wrap. Um, <laughs> so, you know, money well spent. Um, and, uh, and I, I got, uh, I, in my last year of going to school, I got a job uh, working for Natural Resources Canada, which is kind of like U.S. Uh, it's, it's like the uh, geological survey in the U.S. And um, essentially, I was hired to correct a contractor's cartography work gone afoul. Like they, huh. they, and, and so I spent the summer working for them, and then they brought me on in, in, in during the school year, and my grades took a nosedive because I was uh, I was in a BA. Uh, this isn't even a science. You, you don't even necessarily have to be in a science field. I'm one of those idiots where they were like, well, why did, you could have taken a Bachelor of Science and had a real degree. And, <laughs> and, and, and I looked at it, and they were like, I can take all the same GIS design courses as I can with a science field. The only thing is in the science field, I have to take chemistry and physics and calculus. But it didn't change all of my classes. I could still take the physical geography and yeah. all this other really interesting stuff. And so I was like, well, fuck that. I can swear too, right? This is fine. Oh, yeah. I always have to check because it's like... <laughs> oh, man. I always forget to check. I've been bleeped. I've yeah. been bleeped on things before. Oh, no. I'm, I, I'm fairly certain I have. Definitely. Um, Gen Con, it's the, uh, is there a child in the room check? You know, oh, yeah. The quick that's what, glance that's, of the well, we actually, I do it now. We actually announce. Is there any children in this room? And then there's like no no hands raised. And we're like, thank fucking God. <laughs> you know? Um, so, yeah. And, and so I got into this field. Mm-hmm. And then I, I kept working. I, I, I graduated and got into it. And then uh, I just did full-on maps. And mm-hmm. uh, which is a little rare. A lot of the people who work in my field, you get into programming, database people, all the stuff, the back end. Of right. these technologies and there's the front end which is like on our smartphones and google maps and fastest place to get to something or you know how a ambulance figures out the fastest way to get to your house and right. all that stuff 
Um, and, and so that's really cool, but it wasn't really my forte. I can't, I failed basic programming when I was in high school. <laughs> basic, like the actual language basic. Like basic, basic. Basic, basic. <laughs> Only class in my entire life I've ever failed. Wow. And uh, I took it as a sign from God that <laughs> uh, just don't go into this field. It's like, just, there are smarter people than you when it comes to programming. <laughs> and... That's it. And I have tons of friends who are really good at that. And, and this was actually a really good principle in my life, which is that there are some people who are just better at things than you. Don't try to do everything. Try to do the one thing you're really good at. Um, and so I started to really fall in love with visual design and do it from a mapping perspective. And a lot of my early work in the field was in First Nations and protected areas and national parks. And then I did a lot of work with uh, Health Canada, oddly enough, and uh, and then for the last eight or nine years, I've been working with Environment Canada and doing like endangered species mapping, which has been really cool. And that's kind of where I fell in love the most. Because you can kind of, when you're in really big fields like cartography, you can do, like I can make maps of anything and not be bored, you know. Um, but I know I was kind of like, it didn't really make a difference what I was doing. And then when I started getting working in the environmental field, I was like, Ooh, I can believe in this. Yeah. I like this. Yeah. Um, and then I just hung on to it for dear life. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So, um, so you work for Environment Canada, right? Environment and Climate Change Canada. Nice. Which Um, basically becomes in traditional government, government land becomes ECCC. Which is so annoying when you're writing things down. <laughs> How many C's is that? Three C's. <laughs> the only thing that's this only saving grace is because everything has to be bilingual in the federal government. Right. It's the exact same acronym in French as it is in English. Man, I love that. I feel like people who don't live in bilingual countries don't understand the, the profound like branding and like design challenge of bilingualism and how like when you just get certain symmetry or when like it's actually the same number of letters on both sides of the sign or whatever it's like mm. well and, and like in my mapping world like it's there's all sorts of really interesting things about how language is handled for bilingualism uh like you have so like in canada we have uh there's uh a geonames which manages all the names around the country and where they officially are and then there's a thing called uh, Names of Pan-Canadian, Pan-Canadian Significance. And so it's a selection of about 84 names. And if they ever appear, because names are proper names, right? Like, so mm-hmm. uh, Trois-Rivières, mm-hmm. as a direct translation to Three Rivers, doesn't exist. If you Google Three Rivers, you will not find Trois-Rivières. Right. And so a lot of times my biggest, uh, I guess, knife fight that I have on a semi-monthly basis is with communications who wants to translate everything on a map. And I'm like, no, you can't translate it. It's the name of the place. Right. However, um, in the infinite wisdom of Canada, they designated a variety of names that if these maps, if these names are used like Ottawa River, um, that has a bilingual equivalent. And mm. if you actually use that name, you have to put the bilingual version there. Um, so you'd have like Ottawa River and Fleuve d'Ottawa or whatever, you know, and, and so it's a interesting list. And so that's, you use that, some of these things as sort of guiding principles when you're doing things. And, uh, and I do a lot of maps that are, uh, north of 60 degrees. So, uh, they deal with a lot of First Nations and Inuit and things like this. And in a lot of cases, we don't even do, we won't do, uh, English French maps because there's not a lot of French speaking people out there, but we will use, um, English and like enough to and some mm-hmm. of the traditional languages. Mm-hmm. And I actually got this really neat thing the other day. I was working in uh, the Nunavut territorial government gave me a file, and it's basically locations of uh, culturally relevant physical locations in Nunavut with the Anuktitut names, like so with mm-hmm. the Slavic characters and the non-Slavic characters. If you've ever seen it. it We'll have a link in the show notes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just and, um, and, cool. and so it, it, it would have, like, the place that people went hunting and the local villages. And so these names didn't exist mm. um, in the English language. And so you would, a lot of you, if you look at a lot of maps up north, um, it's very British, um, you know. And uh, these are actually slowly being, um, I guess, re- replaced isn't necessarily the right word, but they're, uh, many of them, many of the islands are slowly being sort of retaken, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, almost like a kind of almost a, 
be honest, like how that gentrification, but, but like okay. essentially going back to the cultural roots and right. working with the First Nations people to go, okay, well, what name do you call this island? Right. And then so now on a lot of more recent maps in Canada, we've been either putting both names and in some cases outright removing the original like you know Bank Island and, yeah, yeah. and turning it into um, this very specific regional name. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and putting that there. And so, yeah, I, I did a map where it was like, there were no English names around these peninsulas because the hunters, it wasn't irrelevant, it was irrelevant to our interests, like the settlers mm-hmm. and stuff like this and the early explorers. But there were 30 or 40 names around this peninsula from the various First Nation groups. And mm-hmm. so we used those names on the map because mm-hmm. suddenly this was relevant to everybody the local hunters knew where this was. Right, yeah. Like if you actually live there, it Yeah, makes there's sense all sorts of language. There's a lot of language, like there's a lot of interactions with cartography in the sense that it's, it's, you're showing, um, it's rich design because mm-hmm. you're showing information that is practical and useful and you're trying to show it visually. And then like the goal of cartography is taking, I always describe it as, you're trying to, uh, you're trying to show incredibly complicated information as easily as possible to your audience. So you're constant. You're not trying to dumb it down. I mean, sometimes you are, but you're, you're really trying to explain these really complicated concepts. Um, and, you know, it's sort of like the picture's worth a thousand words and map's worth a million. <laughs> There's my cheesy line. Nice, nice. Um, you've, uh, you've done some mapping or some cartography work for a couple of game projects recently, right? Seventh Sea yeah. and uh, who else? Uh, well, so I'm the lead cartographer on a very small indie project called the Seventh Sea RPG. Oh, I wonder if anyone's heard of that. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> Did they go to Kickstarter perchance? Yeah, yeah. You, just, <laughs> you know, you probably type it into Google and you might find it. Um, and uh, I also did all the maps for uh, uh, Mag- for Magpie Games Urban Shadows. Uh, mm-hmm. They're coming out with an expansion, which is a whole bunch of cities that uh, they had a bunch of people write. Cool. And so, like, I'm doing, I did, like, a map of Tokyo, and I did a map of, like, a, uh, I did, like, five or six maps of New York and stuff like that for that. Um, I also am doing a city map for Project Dark for by uh, Will Heinmarch. Cool. Um, and I've done some older things. Uh, I did... When I first got started, I did a map for an Emily Care Boss game called King Wen's Tower. Oh, cool. Um, which she submitted to, I think that, is it Festival? Festival. Festival. In, in uh, Denmark, yeah. Yeah, so she submitted to that a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. and uh, we were in conversations, and she she actually works in conservation as well as I yeah, do. Yeah, that's right. So we started talking at Metatopia one time, and mm-hmm. I was like, oh, well, I do maps. This is a thing I could do. And then she was all like... Well, this is like historical China, and I was like, "That sounds really yeah. cool." <laughs> and so I did all sorts of research and found like actual like river coastlines that Harvard had done research on. It's like this is where the coastline would be in like 400 BCE and stuff. Wow. And then I was like, "Oh, this is way too much fun." Because if you're gonna make a map like that, you can't you can't chance out. So right, yeah. So I mean, what's uh, how do you approach when someone commissions you to make a map like someone? like for a game versus doing something that's based on say the Canadian North or something extant. Uh, so there, there's in, in role playing games and games, fiction, whatever, there's basically uh, 90% of the people who do cartography in this, in, in the hobby, in games, not mm-hmm. hobby games, but just games are illustrators, classically trained or digitally trained illustrators who have a fancy for cartography and an interest in it. Mm-hmm. Um, these are people like Mike Schley or, uh, from, who does a lot of the D&D 5th edition maps and stuff right. like this. Really amazing visual artists who have an eye for cartography and the concepts in cartography. And they go hardcore into doing map design. Uh, myself, I'm uh, really a terrible illustrator. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. Um, I'm, I'm actually fired in my D&D group from making maps. I'm not really, I mean, they make me do them mostly because everybody likes to mock me, um, <laughs> but it's pretty terrible. Like, I have, you know, I have not really good direction sense. Um, it's just kind of funny that way. But the, uh, sorry, I think I lost my train of thought. Um, so you can't make maps for a D&D game. Yeah, like drawing life. things back. <laughs> um <laughs> But so, you, so you can't draw, but you, know, you can make a map. So what's where do you start then? What's what's your approach? So my approach is I I, I tell my, I I do stuff that's based more in a real world aesthetic. 
So if you want to, if you want, if, I tell right away, the first thing I say is if you want a map that looks like it was hand drawn by someone, go see the following people, but don't talk to me. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not going to have that look. Um, but if you want something that looks like it could come in the real world, looks like a map that you might roll out on a table and go, look, there's the mountains of whatever, uh, then I'm more that kind of person. Uh, I draw more from a realistic angle. Um, sometimes I lean heavily on open information. Um, there's no point redrawing a million streets if you can pull it from another place and mix and twist and change. Um, I'm doing a lot of really weird, I'm trying, I've tried a couple of experiments with a couple projects in terms of manipulating open source information and, and, and mashing it together to create fake places. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, process-wise, a lot of it comes down to what kind of story people are trying to tell out of it. Uh, maps are always telling stories, uh, and you're in a role-playing game. There's usually a specific reason the map is there. You're like you're trying to show like the development in like so Project Dark. It's like a city that has existed in multiple eras of civilization, and so each sort of era of the civilizations has different kind of characters and qualities that the lead designer wants to be in the city. Um, in the case of that, like it was like, well, what's the point of this? Like, well, I want to have a lot of streets, and I want them to have character. And I'm like, okay, well, so you want to name all these streets? And they're like, yeah. So there's like 360 streets, and they all have individual names, wow. and there's thought into this, right? You know, um, in the case of Seventh C, Seventh C is kind of a really weird one. Um, Seventh C originally started as a very small contract. Um, originally, the t- John Wick had got in touch with me because I had done some work for some other people like Magpie Games and things like this. And it was like, we really like your realistic style. We want to have that kind of sense of real world cartography. And so I was like, okay, well, I can do that. And so uh, the, the art pitch was they wanted it to look like Europe at a glance, but clearly not be Europe. Um, right. And so a lot of people have commented, oh, this looks like a map of Europe. And then they're like, no, there's not a third peninsula in Europe. you know. <laughs> um, and so they... Um, the original contract was to create a, a very like, small map with a little bit of detail that would be uh, essentially an illustrative guide for the writing team and the illustrators so they wouldn't uh, conflict with each other when they were working on the main book. Oh. So the idea was, okay, we want to locate where the various regions are, where the towns and the major roads are, and so when they start writing, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Kickstarter happened, and it like funded in like seven minutes or yeah. seven <laughs> seconds or something. It was a... $40,000 goal, and it fun. Yeah, it was, I was just bonkers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, what actually happened was I got a... I didn't know this, but I got an email from Mark Truman, and he's like, hey, would you like to redo the map as a poster? But I was busy at work with my day job, and so I didn't see the email, and eventually Mark was like, ah, fuck it. Of course he'll do it. I mean, who wouldn't want to do that? And so some, <laughs> then I suddenly I get a text from a friend of mine. He's like, you're a stretch goal for 7C, and you've already been funded. <laughs> And I'm like, what? You know, and then I go look up at it and I'm like, I'm doing a what? And I'm, okay, that sounds awesome. Like, who doesn't want to do that? And then it just, it became bigger and bigger and bigger. And so now I'm doing uh, the whole world. I'm doing six poster maps that are each 36 by 24 inches. Um, I'm drawing them in the program that I use at work. Um, I'm actually geo-referencing all the information on the real world. So Thea is drawn over Europe hmm. and all of these other things. The cool little thing, which I'm really hoping to play around with in the future is it means that I can actually export the seven C world into Google maps and people could load it up on an iPad. Wow. Which is kind of cool. So, yeah. Uh, way better than a PDF. Um, yeah. And so uh, it's, well, it's been really fascinating because um, the very first map Thea was mostly based on previous writing. Uh, like, cause there's like, it's an older game from the nineties. Mm. And so there was lots of reference material and, but it was still fun because there was a lot of freedom because John was basically like, this is the general shape. These countries have to be here. These cities have to be here. Mm. Go wild. Um, and it has to make sense. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times people ask me like, well, you know, what's the rules that make sense? And I'm like, well, water flows down hills and <laughs> goes out into the ocean generally. Right. Because in role-playing games, it could be actually totally false. Yeah, yeah. Um, the world could be flat. Um, mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, you just, you draw, you, I draw and create from the heart. Uh, a lot of what I do is 
um, coming up, trying to come up with interesting things, things that look interesting visually. Um, usually I start with the outline area, like the, the outside coastline and try to create an interesting space. Um, usually based on whatever kind of art guidance. So you just get art guidance as map guidance or whatever. Like the nation should be kind of on a peninsula or it's mostly a series. It's an archipelago of islands. I mean, like they don't care what it looks like. You know, right. you're, so there, a lot of it's a visual design coming up with something that looks interesting that would be fun to explore if you were a player in that place. Um, creating like uh, you, when you cre- a good map in games is much like good, uh, I guess, fiction text in a game. The goal is to explain what's going on. So this is where everything is. And then you want to see adventure books. So don't label everything. Have weird things on the map. Have a fallen tower. Have a strange river that doesn't really make any sense. Or a really strange archipelago of islands that are around the deadened isle. And put you can put things that are in names of places. So why is it named the, you know, Miss Swamps, you know? So you label it the Miss Swamps, and then somebody's like, oh, well, there's this... And then the writer team can also tag into this. Um, With 7C, one of the most interesting things is now they're working on the other books. Mm -hmm. And so we started working on Aslan, which is the new... It's kind of uh, Central South America. And in the writing team, they, they brought on an archaeologist. They brought on people with cultural understanding of the area and so they came to me with like okay here's some of our big ideas Mm -hmm. and then I drew up what would be like a reinterpretation of Central South America and then we had a meeting and they're like well we like this we don't like this we want to do something we need a place for this story to occur so can you create this peninsula that will allow these two uh you know these two communities need to interact so but they can't interact because of the following reasons like it can't be mountains it can't has to be this and so essentially you're writing, the writing team is giving me the story behind the world and then I'm creating the world to fulfill that story. Wow. Um, we went back and forth a couple times um, uh, and it's uh, mostly done. Um, <laughs> I, we, I blew up, uh, the bigger changes were like I cut Argentina in half and just blew off the bottom because it didn't fit on the map. Um, I was like, it's not going to fit. Well, I'll just trim the country. No one's going to notice. Um, we b- sort of drifted Brazil out to sea and made it kind of an island. Cool. It's a pirate island with volcanoes on it and stuff. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I just sort of redid all sorts of things. And so, yeah, it's, it's a really creative... It's really fascinating because I'm working on a... I'm building a world, which I've done in D&D games I've run. Yeah. But I've not done it for the $1.3 million Kickstarter. Right. So it's like building something that people outside of my immediate friends and family are going to look at. And so now it's like I did a map and they decided to put it as the cover wrap in the core book. So, mm-hmm. you know, and then they printed 20,000 books. So my map is in 20,000 books. Yeah, it's kind of wild. I mean, you've you've published you published Headspace on your own and it's very much your game. What's the fun in, or where does the satisfaction come in playing in someone else's world or in someone else's game as compared to publishing your own? Um, it's nice to have some constraints. Mm. Um, constraints are, um, it's useless to me. Big ideas of like, make it fancy is useless. Mm. I need some, I need something to work with. Um, one of the hardest things of working in your own space is that you, it's very difficult to place constraints on yourself. Um, you want your idea to be big and bold and crazy and, um, and sometimes it is, but the smartest thing you can do is you know, draw, start drawing lines, lines and veils and stuff like that, right? <laughs> right. And, um, yeah, and, and so when, when I do other, when I'm involved in other people's creative work, I, I, I usually try to hone, aim in on what the constraints of this world are, what they want, what, what do they want, you know, mm-hmm. or what they don't want, right? You know, like, you don't want any rivers? Okay, so let's make a desert kind of thing. Okay, yeah. that's a thing I need to know. Or you want uh, canals. Okay, do the canals need to be... Tell me, do they, do they need to be, like, were they man-made? Because if they were man-made, then they can be sharp edges, and that will tell me more about what I need to do design-wise. Because I also don't want to go back and forth and have to redraw everything, yeah. and this really sucks. Um, so, yeah, like, I, I find, like, constraints is the big one. Um, working on my own game is really freeing from constraints, um, but all, as a designer, you, you want 
you have to put constraints. You have to figure out what the constraints of this world and game that you're creating are. Like, what, what's the conceit? You know, uh, okay, there's corporations and they're ruthless and corrupt. Okay, what's the so what? And the so what is people fighting against them. Okay, so it's like a guerrilla war. It's in the future. It's basically what if Trump won? You know, um, you keep going, right? With you, yeah. you start creating all these sort of lines about what defines this world as being different from our own, and then you create within that space. You know, um, and whether it be visually in the case of a map or writing, you know, and and uh, it's that rough sketch. Um, the rough sketch and guidance that you create is the same same sort of process ultimately. If you're going to hire an author to write 5,000 words about this fictional city, or you're going to hire a cartographer to draw this fictional city, you still need to have that guide, same guidance. Um, you might even give them the same guidance. Um, Seven C is really weird because the two of us are getting to work together at the same time, which is very unique. Whereas usually someone has a vision, and your job is to uh, show said vision unmolested, you know, right. by your own ideas, mm-hmm. maybe. Um, uh, or, or you're constrained as history, you know, if you're doing a historical game. So, right. like, Kingwin's Tower was like that. It was like, these these nations actually existed at this time period. Show them. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you know, I hadn't thought before about how creative the practice of cartography is, because even though there's the world and you are representing it, you're deciding what, what like, even in a historical game, you're deciding what is important enough to put on the map, or, like, what do you label, or what do you include? Yeah, like, I mean, the, the simplest example is, like, so cartography is always representing... Uh, always representing a generalization of the real world. Right. You know, I mean, the most accurate map in the world is a one-to-one map, which is also completely useless because it's gigantic. You yeah. know? <laughs> um, it's really like it take you so long to scroll where your location is. Uh, but, I mean, the, the best example I can always think of is uh, when I try to describe, like, what is the difference between the real world and when you would see it on a map is what happens at the end, the coastline of a road. So there's a road that's going down a path, and next to that road there's a rail line, and it's maybe about maybe 10 meters away, and maybe about 20 meters away from that is a power line, and uh, let's say 100 meters to the other direction of the roadway is a river. Mm-hmm. These are all pretty simple concepts, and let's just keep it simple, and they all go in a straight line. Sure. Now, you're making a map that's at a scale of 1 to 1 million, so a unit on the map is like a, a million of those units in the re- real world. So in that case, you'd have a centimeter is a kilometer. A millimeter is big, because my brain's not working quite right. But so in these cases, um, all of these objects at this scale are right on top of each other. The road, because they can't. They're they're like 10 meters away from each other. Mm -hmm. So the cartographer's job is to represent these things with a space between them so that visually we can reinterpret the world as we need, we know that they're all next to each other, but we need to see that they're actually Mm -hmm. there because if they're all the lines are on top of each other, they just like a big jumbled mess. So you separate them by a space. Now a millimeter, I mean, if the map is like, um, you know, if a millimeter on the map is like a kilometer, let's say not using the original scale, but if it's like a kilometer, then Every time you space, if you space these five objects out, you, you, you're moving the, the road is now a kilometer away from the river and the, the railway is a kilometer from the river. Right. And so, so by the time you're done with this, the power line is now five kilometers away from the river in the real world. There's nowhere near where it is. And now you continue that illustrative path through every object in the entire map. Right. So maps exist in a totally different kind of interaction of spaces and uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, if you're looking at stuff on your phone, it's like, you know, meters and across the street and stuff. A lot of the stuff I deal with is, uh, things that are posters and, mm-hmm. you know, like all of Canada on a 30 by 30 piece of paper, you know, right. if mm. that makes sense. Now, what are the lessons that you're, to bring it back to your own design, um, And not even just design, but I'm talking about, like, the production. Like, yours, like, Headspace is the most classic, like, capital I indie game of, like, you made this game and printed it out and shipped it. And when I say ship, your face just falls. Um, Sort of shipped it. (laughs) It's in the process. Um, What about cartography do you bring to the process of producing something like a game book? Um, Attention to detail. (laughs) Um, 
having a plan, trying to work within that plan. Uh, I mean, Headspace was the first and only game I've ever made. Uh, it was a three-year journey. Um, it was mostly a lot of fun. Um, there's parts of it, days, weeks. I mean, I even did some maps in it, but it was actually the maps I did in it were relatively the easiest thing I did in the whole project. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think a lot of, like, my cartography brain is very organized. Um, I'm the kind of person who makes things bulleted lists and, uh, you know, despite the fact that I'm basically verbal diarrhea incarnate, um, <laughs> I am uh, very organized in a lot of other ways in my life, especially mm-hmm. the way I take notes and, and, and I move things around and, and, and look at, like, concepts in a game or an RPG or, like, you know, this chapter's going to be here and this is going to be there. And, um, kind of coming up with a hierarchy, like, there's a hierarchy in design, like, you know, just between colors and lines and how you're going to organize information. And you're trying to ultimately communicate an idea. And so the same sort of principle of trying to communicate that idea is that I do visually, mm-hmm. I sort of, I guess, broke apart into its components in a, in a design. And I'm like, all right, well, the end point is that they can see the world this way. So how do I, what do I need to do to communicate that vision? I need to have a chapter on this and a chapter on that. And then, okay, well, within this chapter, what has to happen? Or within the game, how do, how do I make players feel like hyper-competent badasses, you know? Um, and so in some cases you eventually go, oh, well, every time they roll the dice, there's a chance they can fail. And I was all like, at a certain point I was like, fuck it, just because Apocalypse World always has 2d6 <laughs> doesn't mean I always have to have 2d6. I give people, like, I majorly freak people out when I tell people that. Like, I'm like, you're making your game yeah. first, you know? Um... So, like, Vincent Baker's a really great person, and he won't mind if you fuck with his property. Um, he'll love it. Um, and I drifted really far on Headspace. Um, enough that I, I have gotten criticisms from people that it's not, it's not Apocalypse World. And I'm like, alright. That's, yeah. That's accurate. fair. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, it, there are there is no shortage of pure Apocalypse World games out there. So if you want to play a, a pure, uh, I made a bunch of playbooks, and here's the, I don't know, we're all like Western gunfighters, and here's our Western gunfighter playbook sets. That's what makes the game great, is you can mm-hmm. totally do that, and off you go, and you'll have tons of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, my game was like, I used Apocalypse World because it was a salute, it was a means to an end. You mm-hmm. know, it was like, I needed a system that did certain things. This system did some of those things, and then I, you know, jury rigged the rest of it. Right, filled in the gaps. Sometimes really big gaps, you know. Um, <laughs> and then you start changing pieces of an engine, and suddenly the car starts to do funny things. And, uh-huh. and uh, role playing game systems have a tendency, they aim to misbehave, you know. You create a rule to solve a problem, and it moves forward, and then creates. Uh, a lot of designers don't talk about this enough, but emergent properties of games, mm-hmm. you know, where games sort of do a thing and it was never really intended. Um, like that, that, uh, this special feeling you get when you play Fiasco that inherently puts people, everybody at their throat. Like if you were to challenge people and you're like, well, what's the mechanic that causes that? They'd be like, Hmm, yeah. you know? Um, and so there were certain things that happened in Headspace and then, I was like, oh, I like that. I don't want to lose that. Um, and a lot of times those emergent properties of what happens when people play your game are based in the rules and or even how they read, you know, like a, a certain paragraph of intro text for your character will overrule the shit out of two dice plus two, you know? Right. Um, if you say you're a wild-ass, badass motherfucker and you roll two dice plus two and roll a four, you have just lied to the player... Um, and now everyone's picking up, pick, you know, picking up the pieces, but the players will totally overrule you and be like, I'm going to kick ass with that four, you know? <laughs> so, because you told them, mm-hmm. um, you know, which, I mean, that happens in every game, like RPGs, LARPs, yeah. all that stuff. I don't have a lot of experience with LARP-ish. Except, like all humans in existence on Earth, you were a vampire LARPer in the 90s. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, you think I was going to let this whole interview yeah, go before? I was hoping. Out? No, not going to happen. Uh, yeah. So, <laughs> like everybody in my generation who was really hardcore into White Wolf games and played Vampire Forever and ran Vampire yeah. Forever, um, except I didn't play Werewolf because I didn't like it and it sucks. Um, there we go. Opinion, hot, hot opinions from Canadian designers. Um, I'll leave Mark's email in the show yeah, notes. <laughs> Jesus, the end of my life. Um, uh, no, uh, and so at a one point in time, like we played in some of the vampire larps and with a bunch of friends, and then we were all like, "This, this is fun, but we don't like it that much." And um, and then God help us, we decided, well, hey, we can run a better larp. And so me and several very good friends of mine who are still good friends, um, despite this occurrence in our lives, uh, <laughs> ran a chronicle in the Ottawa live-action era. I guess we were late 90s, before mm-hmm. 2000, I think. Yeah. Well, it was probably when I was in university, so around then. And uh, we ran it. It was called Egos and Icons, and it ran for, I guess, a year and a half. We ran it at Ottawa University and all sorts of weird things. Oh, my God, the drama... Tell like, me, like, tell me the good, like, what did you learn from, like, as a designer or as a player from being involved in organizing LARPs? Um, I think, I think I learned was that big stories don't work. Um, it, it was that subtle thing that happens in LARP where LARP is a really personal experience. Yeah. And a lot of times you're, as a designer of LARP, I can only imagine you, ultimately you have to design for that personal experience. Um, the... The plot hook of the Camarilla getting together for the weekend for their big hoedown only is interesting to three people in the room who are like the prince of the city and his close entourage. Mm-hmm. So good for you. You just gave more. You, you spent your weekend as a GM coming up with more ideas for the three people who already have more than they need to interact with. Mm-hmm. Like the the biggest problem I found with the vampire LARP as a sort of genre is it didn't design for the every person. It, it didn't try to put in those story hooks and bring people into something. Just give them something. Um, and so you, I, I found myself always seeing people who were kind of wandering and, you know, would just sort of... There was, there was always like a tight-knit group of people who really dug deep into it and loved it. Mm-hmm. And there was a bunch of other people who were like, eh, I'm doing it because my friends are doing it. You know, that kind of thing. I mean, there was some great role-playing experiences, uh, some really positive things. Tell me, tell um, me, tell me about a beautiful experience. Because a lot of people want to shit on vampire larping, and and the fact is, like, you know, people have mixed experiences. But like, tell me, tell me a really cool experience or a really beautiful experience that you had uh, d- doing Mind's Eye Theater. Um, I think, yeah, I think the coolest things I liked about uh, the games were planting a seed in a big story and seeing that sort of, uh, I guess, flower uh, in, in, in play over that happens over multiple sessions mm-hmm. and eventually turns into, like, big LARPs have this really weird broken telephone dynamic where yeah. it's like, y- you're like, you start a you just create a little thread of an idea and then the next thing you know, it's like, the witch is, needs to get burned <laughs> and they're the witch because of this other thing. Um, now, admittedly, a lot because it, Vampire LARP was Vampire LARP. The reason why this other person was the witch is because they were the roommate that left somebody or something like that. Mm-hmm. So there was all that. That was the wonderful drama part, right? You know. <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't. I mean, it was fun. You know, like it's like everything. Like you know, it's like I don't like every D and D game I ever played and stuff like this. And you know, it um, it gets a bad rap, but it's like an interesting place. To, and then I left it. You know, like. Just like oh oh like it like, like leave like like after the, after I walked away from that I was like okay fuck LARP I'm not touching it ugh and then I had like a bitter taste because I had a lot of baggage from LARP and so when I got more into design and stuff like that people were like oh LARP it's really cool and all I saw was like goth kids and university campus and campus security flashbacks <laughs> and, and I'm like no no I don't I don't think this is this isn't the word you think it is. Yeah. Um, and I, I tried a couple things. Yeah. Actually, interestingly enough, the, the uh, Luke Crane's new game, which is on Kickstarter. That's right, Inheritance. And, yeah, yeah. And, and that was the first kind of modern LARP I played. I was down mm-hmm. at, I think, Metatopia. It was either Metatopia or Dream Nation. I'm pretty sure it was Metatopia. Probably. And I was between slots, and something I was going to play fell through, and I bumped into Luke, and he's like, do you want to play a Viking LARP? And I'm like, mm, I guess. <laughs> 
And then I even got to be the person who's like the person who's actually inheriting. Like that was my role. So I was central to everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a lot of fun. You know, Mm -hmm. it was super cool. I was like, oh yeah, this could be LARP if it was done well. And uh, I haven't done a lot though, like since then. Like I've done, I played Inheritance and I think, hmm, I've read some stuff. And I've sort of, I have these ideas for LARPs. Or I, or I have ideas for role-playing games, and then I'm like, the more I talk to people like Jason Morningstar, I'm like, mm. hmm, you know, this wouldn't, this would be an okay tabletop game, but this would be a totally bitching, fuck-with-your-mind live-action game. Mm-hmm. And, like, like any good designer, like, my ideas are terrible, like, like in the sense, like, they're, they're really horrible things. Like, you know, like, because, like, a lot of LARP is, is, like, we're gonna, you know, it's not interesting to be, like, well, we're working in the kitchen today. It's the baking LARP, you know? I mean, that could be really fascinating. There is, actually, I can think of two. That but, doesn't surprise me. But, but, but you're right. A lot of people who are drawn to LARP design are also drawn to these, like, really kind of difficult emotions or, like, painful experiences. Yeah. yeah. Like, I pitched a concept to a couple people, and, they, uh, like, the industry is super helpful. Like, they're always, like, hey, yeah. like, uh, Jason was, like, gave me some drafts of books he's worked on and stuff like that, and I was like, oh, this is really cool, because I pitched this idea, and I was like, so the idea is, mm. um, I have, like any good designer, I have, I have the name of my game before I have my design, right? Uh-huh. Uh, it was Eye in the Sky, I watched a bunch of stuff, and on, uh, I found drones really fascinating, and drone wars, and all that stuff, and, and I was like, oh, well, wouldn't it be really cool, like, you do, like, a LARP, where, like, half the LARP is, like, the, U- the faux U.S. military... Uh, dropping bombs and using drones and stuff like this. And then the other half of the LARP, you play the civilians where the bombs are falling on them. They're dealing with the family crisis of, like, people who've died and stuff. I'm like, that would be terrible! And I'm like, that would be an amazing LARP because it's so terrible. And I'm like, and then I, but I don't really understand LARP design, so I'm trying to get into, that's like my goal of Metatopia this year, is understanding the principles of LARP design. Uh, like, I looked at the Golden Cobras and I was just like, uh yeah. Like, I have no idea. You know, like, I just don't even know what, um, I, I'm fairly certain the systems inherent in LARP are very similar to the systems in tabletop, but I don't, like, I'm like, well, what comp, what is the thing, the, the, the engine, like, what are, like, what are examples of engines, right? You know? Yeah. Um, I have no concept for that, like, no framework to put, I, like, I'm like, okay, I can take that idea and festoon it on, an RPG, but then it's just, it goes back to people being around a room and not, like, LARP is not just RP standing up, yeah, you know? Yeah. I mean, I guess some of it is, but it's usually deeper than that, you know? It, um, yeah, it's, it, there's more to it. And I think it's, um, I think LARP design is intimidating in a way, and I think LARP doesn't have its apocalypse world yet. Like, I think at some point someone's going to make the LARP equivalent of Apocalypse World where people can hack it and make games based on it and, like, work with it. And I think that's going to do wonders for LARP design because I, like, I LARP all the time, like, a lot, and I talk to people about it all the time, and I still kind of have no idea where you start to make a game. Yeah, like, uh, it's interesting there's, um... So like some designers, some school of thought of designers are like, you know, you haven't really designed until you've made your whole system. That's a big bullshit lie. But um, th- the thing is with like gaming, especially like uh, it's really hard coming up with an engine that works. And there are a couple out there that work really well and have established fan bases, which is helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard enough getting people to even notice your, you know, shared consciousness, apocalypse world hack. Um when it's your first game, let alone, like, if I made it with my own system, like, people wouldn't give me the time of day. I mean, as it was, you know, only recently are people now running my game, and I'm like, I was at a convention and people were, like, running my game and I didn't know. Somebody ran my game at Gen Con. When I was at the the one-shot podcast networking thing, Mm -hmm. I I was talking to this one woman She's like, oh, yeah, well, tomorrow, like, what are you playing? Like, what are you doing tomorrow? I'm like, oh, well, I'm going to be playing Headspace. And I'm like, cool. Well, I'm starting it at noon. I'll be, no, my game's at 11. And I'm like, I'm not running it at 11. <laughs> who, what imposter's running my game, you know? <laughs> who, and Who dares who, run this game that I produced and made for people yeah, to Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what bullshit is this crap, you know? And and, and, and then, then they're like telling me about it. And I'm like, really? I'm like, that's awesome. Because, like, my, my ultimate goal as a designer has always been... I want complete strangers to run my game, have fun, and not even tell me about it. You know, I mean, now I prefer it if they do tell me about it because it helps stoke my ego and make me work on other games. But that's it. Like, 
so like yeah, Headspace is a success minus the shipping. Um, mm-hmm. And um, things, you know, we are all, not all things in game design, and you have to be that way. Like you have to do everything. Um, yeah. So here's a question. We have a few more minutes if you want. Sure. I would love to talk to you about uh, about gaming and doing gaming events and being sober. Hard. Um, if you want to. No, I'm okay. I can talk about this. Yeah, yeah. so I, um, I mean, for those listening at home, I've been pretty open about it. Um, mm-hmm. I'm 22 days sober at awesome. this point. Uh, today is 23. Um I, it's something I've struggled with a long time and never really known. There's a lot of people within the community of gamers who have struggled with addiction in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's more apparent than people give credit to. Um, and, you know, I mean, there's a lot of people within the community that struggle with a variety of things, be it anxiety, depression, yeah. uh, varieties of mental illness and uh, physical illness and, and so on and so forth. But at least in terms of the addiction thing... Um, like, a lot of conventions occur around the bar, and yeah. bar it's called BarCon for a reason. Um, mm. I'm a little scared about that, frankly. Um, uh, I'm not... Um, hmm. Metatopia is going to be the big test, which yeah. is mostly surrounded by a lot of friends and everything like that, so that's yeah. super hearty and good. Um, I, I'm a little bit more worried about bigger conventions like Gen Con. I, I, I'm not worried about, like... Uh, I'm not the kind of person who like lunge, wants to lunge across the table and grab a beer or something like this, but it's just like I don't want to be in a bad place and be at a convention. Conventions are gaming conventions as designers are very emotional places. Totally, um, I have totally teared up. Um, uh, one of the things I always say to people because I'm really big into self care when you're at conventions mm-hmm. is uh, you have to if you're going to a convention and you're designing especially. Care about yourself, number one. You're number one. Everyone else can fuck off. Just say it. <laughs> say it loudly to yourself. You know? Um, it doesn't mean you're going to leave them in a ditch, you know? Yeah. But it means you you cannot take care of that friend in the ditch if you are basically in that ditch with them. Right. And so you give yourself space. Don't overload yourself. Don't over... Like, yes, you can, you can play test your game six times. Don't. Play mm-hmm. test your game maybe three or four times. Yes, that means 12. But lucky people won't see your idea. <laughs> but you will survive. survive. Yeah. And the reason why I do this is because you do not, you are not in control of everything, especially at conventions. And mm-hmm. God help, if you run like an incredibly tight ship, and you can, and I have several friends who will remain nameless, um, who give themselves way too much. They push themselves way too hard. And here's the problem. If you're at a convention something bad happens either at the convention or to a friend at the convention or God help you at at home, home, um, you're fucked. Um, You will not be able to cope. Uh, One of the first year I was, I think it was the first year I was at Gen Con or maybe the second year I was at Gen Con. Mm -hmm. My uncle passed away while I was on the flight down. Um, And so I was trying to deal with that the whole time. And the last day I just, you know, I was sobbing into Ryan Macklin's arms, you know, like, uh, who's an amazing person. Um, the, the judge of a character is on the Sunday after Gen Con. If you're, if you're hugging and crying and, and they're totally cool, yeah. that's how you know you found a friend. Yeah, totally. Um, and, but that's the thing, like, I don't, that was my, my lesson learned was like, it's not that I have no problem with being a crying wreck. I just don't want to if I can avoid it. Right. And, Certainly, like, when I look at, uh, like, drinking, like, drinking is a basically, at the end of the day, like, to, for me, it was a bit of a crutch, and it was a bit of a mm-hmm. self-medicating thing. My problem was always that if I had one, I had two, and if I had two, I had three. Right. So, you know, it, it's basically the the only solution is to have zero. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I've been doing. And that's been, I'm working out pretty good, um, and being really helpful, and I'm really supportive family, friends, uh... I'm very open with it. Like I did some big yeah. posts on Facebook and I just like, I, I can, um, I, uh, I've struggled with anxiety my whole life. And, uh, I learned a long time ago, at least for myself, yeah. that a lot of people who deal with anxiety or depression or something, they don't share because of the stigma that they attach with it. And mm-hmm. what I found that's incredibly freeing is I got to a certain point with my anxiety where I was like, you know, I'm just going to tell everybody yeah. what is the worst that can happen. And the worst that can happen is a couple of your friends might be assholes and then they're not friends anymore and, you know, fuck them. And then you're better off. And then you're better off. And then you can live your whole life where you don't have to worry about that. And, (laughs) 
and it was super like as soon as I and I just decided I would apply that same principle to alcohol. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, all right, fuck it. And I did a I did a Facebook post. I said, hi, my name is Mark, and I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. And here's why. All, I listed off all the various reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is my decision. Just letting you know, FYI, mm-hmm. I'll keep you posted. You know, mm-hmm. and I don't know, like. There was, like, I think everybody... I had, like, 500 friends on Facebook. And, like, I had, like, 160 comments. And it was all very supportive. Yeah. But it was so freeing. Because then, every time I met people, Mm -hmm. I didn't have to re-explain it. Or I didn't have to... You know, I came here. For example, like, you and I never had a conversation up until now about me having any struggle with alcohol. Mm -hmm. But because I had shared this on Facebook, you knew. And so when we sat down, you... You know, instead of being like a couple of weeks ago, we were going to share a beer, exactly. you know, and, and now it's having a glass of water. Mm-hmm. And so it has completely taken apart the anxiety that I would have about mm-hmm. either having to re-explain something on the spot, yeah. uh, which is just exhausting after a while. Totally. Um, and so, yeah, like in a lot of ways, like, I mean, like the gaming community is incredibly open and inviting. You know, accepting that these people are your friends and knowing that it's certainly, I mean, it's easier for me because I'm a white dude. Right, right. You know, like I have infinite, infinitely high um, on the privilege privilege ladder, you (laughs) know. So for me to say this, I'm not going to get taken advantage of, or at least to a minimum degree. And I have like a stable job Mm -hmm. and I have like a mortgage house and I make all my bank payments and all this stuff. So like it's, I'm not saying this is for everybody because it might be hard because maybe you'd be like, well, maybe somebody doesn't want to hire a artist or a cartographer who is struggling with alcohol because maybe they're going to think I'm going to blow a deadline, Mm -hmm. you know, totally possible. And you may want to keep it to yourself for that reason. Yeah. But, Um, but, you know, saying what has been helpful for you and what's been meaningful and freeing for you is not the same as saying what everyone else should do. No. You know, I think you're, you're speaking honestly about your experience and what's been. Yeah. Like you you have to share your, your Your truth, your truth. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, the community's been really, you know, welcoming and helpful, and mm-hmm. um, I I now know of several designers who are also, you know, alcoholics or struggle with addiction, yeah. and uh, I plan to, if anything, sort of float amongst them a little bit more at some of the conventions because it's this like-minded person who yeah. doesn't necessarily want to be around that or whatever. Yeah. I I don't have a problem with it. Like I think I'm, you know, there's plenty of friends of mine who love drinking and I love hanging out with, and I will have no problem sitting next to them while they get smashed um i'm a little curious how i'm gonna be like i ran my first game sober um last yeah i ran my new dungeons and dragons game because i decided i would replace one of my pub not my friday pub night with running dungeons and dragons that's a pretty awesome replacement yeah that's what i thought and so i was like fuck it i'm gonna run dnd i love running dnd um and oh and i brought my cartography into it and decided the world is flat um and and uh all the explorers who want, try to go from one, one place to the other all got eaten by other things because there were monsters there and stuff. Right. So I, I bring, bring, bring it back to the maps always. But I was like, all right, I'm going to run D&D and I'm going to replace that with a pub night and then it'll be a fun thing. And then everybody there was my friends and so no one else brought booze. And mm-hmm. a, a key thing when, when I say sober is uh, it's not just saying like not smashed, right? Yeah. Like sobriety is, it's been 22 days since I've had a drink, mm-hmm. you know? It's not to say that I was a raging alcoholic, slobbering. Most people, when I tell people that I decided I was an alcoholic, are taken aback. Right. Because uh, I was at a very functional place of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. You know, I did all my drinking in the evening, and a lot of it mostly affected my partner. Uh, I was, you know, forgetful about things that we talked about, and that was where it was hurting me. Mm-hmm. And that's where I decided to pull away from that. And I'm and, and mostly recognizing that I, if this isn't my bottom, I don't want to know what my bottom is. Totally. You know, and I don't want to be there. No. You know, I, I, I want to be, uh, you know, I might look kind of young, but I turned 30, God help me, 39 in like a week and a half, <laughs> you know. So I, I want to be, you know, not always blitzed when I go out. And, you know, like I was finding at Gen Con and stuff like this, like the, you know, there were some parties I went to where I was like, I don't really remember a lot of the evening. I'm like, I don't like that. You know, yeah. like I don't, I, I met so many amazing people. I want to have those memories of all those amazing people. And, you know, so fuck it. I'm just going to keep it on a straight and narrow and run that. And, you know, it's, uh, find good people, yeah. you know, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the golden rule with the conventions. I could do an entire podcast on I know, I know. This. I'm going to link um, to your, your some of your posts about Yeah, I totally link into some of my G Plus stuff. And, I, I love that stuff. Um, but, you know, like con buddies, you know. Mm-hmm. Get a few, you know, get a, one or two people. They're not just for people who are in the wallows of depression. They're for mm-hmm. anyone. Like, have someone to meet up with for the love of God, you know. Because <laughs> um, they're intimidating. Um, and I've seen a few game designers, uh, this is a complete aside, but who are no longer game designers because the convention was too stressful for them. They were in tears. They were, people said bad things to them about their designs and whatever, and and they just couldn't, it was too much. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that's a huge loss for us because these people are really cool and their ideas are awesome and rich Mm -hmm. and they should totally get into this. Right. And and it's on us to make conventions less fucking like of a awesome. train wreck. Yeah. Yeah. Like you you <laughs> were talking about you had did your first Gen Con. Yeah. And, and and I was like, holy shit, like I can't even imagine like You know, I think it's easy to you know, talking about drinking, it's easy to, to jump to the thought like I did that like wow, conventions are gonna be tough. Convention conventions would be a challenging environment because drinking is so normalized there. But at the same time, like it sounds like the community has actually been enormously supportive and that's yeah. actually a source of strength and there's going to be people like i already know a few people who you know have struggled like um, mm-hmm. my good friend john adamus is he's very similar to me in the sense that he kind of airs his laundry yeah. and uh you know he's uh, as i described him to some i said he has a lot of ex- oh, he has a, a large amount of experience with addiction and he was all like no one's ever said that, you know? It's like, yeah. that sounds like resume-worthy, you know? And it, and it, it is. fucking is. It is. It's because, an asset. Because yeah. his coping mechanisms are in, are unbelievable, yeah. you know? Uh, he has, you know, stuff that would, you know, you're like, you're like, really? I can do that? Because mm. it, it's all about coping mechanisms. Absolutely. And those coping mechanisms can be applied for I don't like drinking just as easily as how do I cope being the only woman in a room of male testosterone gamers, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, how do I cope with loss? How do I cope with stress? Yeah. It's, yeah, yeah, th- those things are very broadly applicable. And I hope, I wish that more people would recognize that, like, the shitty things that have happened to you are not things to be embarrassed about. If you've survived them, then you developed skills and you developed, uh, like you say, coping mechanisms or, like, strategies to deal with those things. And that's, like, tremendously awesome, and you should be able to share that. Totally. With yeah. the one exception that if it is truly embarrassing and funny, also wear that on yourself. You know? <laughs> like, just like, you know, if, if you're in your government office and you're doing a lip sync competition and you say you have a bunny costume at home, you wear that bunny costume to work like I did today. I saw that on Facebook. Yeah. I did. I like that it was just no context. I was like, yeah, the context is we're doing a charity lip sync next week for an event. And so I'm going to be lip syncing and dressed up as a rabbit in front of my entire department. Wow. For some good end, right? Yeah, some sort of charity. Money, money, yeah, money. It's the government workplace charitable campaign. So we do, you know, they'll be, they'll raise a bunch of money in a wow. charity. Amazing. And I'll make an ass of myself and there'll be photos in the departmental record for the rest of my life. So. That's good. Again, play to it. It's a strength. Yeah. It's power. Have no shame. Have no shame. Okay. That's it. That's where we're ending. Um, if people want to keep up, keep up with you and keep up with your work, where should they go? Uh, if you want to check out some of the design work I've done, like cartography work and or like my game Headspace. Headspace is available on DriveThru. By the time this airs, it'll be a purchasable print from Indie Press Revolutions. Awesome. Yay! Um, I, I have a website called greenhatdesigns.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can check out some of my work there. Um, I live in Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I am at slave to the hat. Uh, and, uh, I just live there. That is the single greatest, best place to get a hold of me. And mm-hmm. I'm more than happy to have a conversation about mapping, uh, bunnies or, uh, game design. And uh, other than that, you know, I'm on Facebook and G plus. Cool. Good. Good to know. Thanks so much. This was totally, totally rad. It was very awesome. Well, thanks again to Mark for coming on the show. And as always, thank you for listening. Remember that if you ever want to get in touch, you can always reach me via email. That's backstorypodcast at gmail.com. On Google+, that's Backstory Podcast, Or on Twitter, at BackstoryCast. Backstory is part of the OneShot Podcast Network. You can find more great shows like OneShot, Campaign, Modifier, Talking Tabletop, First Watch, and Second Watch, all at OneShotPodcast.com. Music for Backstory is provided by Ujiko. 
The track is called Thinking of You, and you can hear more at soundcloud.com slash Ujiko. Talk to you later, heroes.